You are listening to National Security Law Today. I'm Elisa Poteet, and welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. This week, we continue our series on Ukraine with a discussion of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and the role of that alliance in the current Ukraine war. Yesterday, I recorded with Erwan Lagadek of George Washington University. When I recorded that podcast, Professor Lagadek predicted that German Chancellor Olaf Scholz would agree to release Leopard tanks to be used in the Ukraine conflict. It had not happened at the time we recorded, but within hours, it occurred. Thanks, and we hope you enjoy this podcast with Professor Lagadek. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're looking at NATO form and reform before our eyes during this conflict, but take us back, please, and give us a bit of history. How and why did NATO start? And also paint a picture for us of the situation in Europe in 1949 as NATO was forming. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's useful to look back at the early days of uh, NATO, not for the sake of a historical excursion, but because part of what the where the conflict is waged right now between Russia and, and the West is uh, also in terms of narratives of what NATO's history has been about. If we backtrack to 1949, what you're looking at is initially an effort between the French and the British in 1947 to create yet another bilateral alliance between the two of them because they are concerned about yet another phase of German rearmament. But that's 47. Quickly enough, in 48, 49, you're seeing the end of the alliance between the British, the Americans, the French on one side and the Soviet Union on the other. It's increasingly clear by 1948 that the USSR is what you need to be worried about. So in 1948, a number of European, Western European nations come together and, and sign on to the so-called Brussels Treaty, which is also meant to indicate to the United States that Western Europeans might be taking their security seriously and bonding together primarily to take on the Soviet threats, but that they need the US to come in, to come back in, because make no mistake, the US had mostly left Europe after 1945. So there is no continuity between 45 and the creation of NATO in 49. The Europeans needed to ask the Truman administration and the US Senate to come back in. And they do so by, by way of that initial Brussels Treaty in 1948, which then entices the US Senate to accept the need for the US to sign on to what, if you think back to the Washington farewell address in 1796, if memory serves, Washington had warned the U.S. against a permanent alliance, permanent entanglement with Europe, and that's precisely the taboo that is broken in April 1949 with the creation of NATO, uh, where the U.S. accepts to reinvest itself in Western European security by providing, especially through Article 5 of the Washington Treaty, a collective defense commitment to Western Europe. The twist to the story is that the U.S. eventually was enticed into that alliance by way of a quid pro quo where the language of the collective security 
Article 5 in NATO's founding treaty was somewhat watered down so that to this day, Article 5 does, does not say that if any ally is attacked, you need to go to war on their behalf because that would be preempting the U.S. Senate's right to declare war. The Article 5 only says that uh, should one of the allies be attacked through a military aggression, then all allies need to essentially think about what they are going to do in, in response, but without spelling out what that should be. Final point that I would make that even though in uh, by April 1949, it is now clear that the enemy de facto is going to be the Soviet Union, and that's the primary security threat. A couple of caveats here. Number one is that the NATO treaty does not spell out that the enemy is the Soviet Union. There was great wisdom in the ability of, of NATO to navigate the post-Cold War era because after 1991, a, a strong argument to keep NATO alive was that it had never claimed that the problem was the Soviet Union, even though that was self-evident in the early days. The second point that I would make is that let's recall that NATO is also a European alliance. That's a point that many sort of anti-American observers and policymakers in the likes of France occasionally have lost sight of is that NATO is not only about enshrining a U.S. security guarantee in Europe, but is also initially a European alliance that managed to add the U.S.'s signature on what had been initially a European treaty. Let's talk about the First Nations, though, that we're in it. It is indeed a European alliance, and we're seeing it expand before our eyes. But at the very beginning, who were the beginners of it, other than the United States? The Well, I wish we were seeing it expand before our eyes, but uh, Erdogan and, and Orban, to some extent, seem to have different ideas about the pace of this. Uh, anyways, yes, to your question, the general idea is that the allies in Western Europe and North America were going to defend themselves against the Soviet threat, essentially cut and pasting the strategic template that they had used against Nazi Germany, which is you need to prevent the Soviet Union from breaking out through the Baltic Sea and the uh, the Black Sea. You need to lock in the Soviet Union, and that is why you need a North Atlantic alliance. The United States at the same time is concerned that if the UK and the French especially are going to be members of that alliance, they are concerned that they are going to be dragged into colonial wars on behalf of uh, the French and the British. And so there is the founding treaty does specify that only a security issue in the North Atlantic and in Europe would warrant invoking Article 5. But other than that caveat, yeah. The, the template is North America is going to be the arsenal of democracy, is going to set itself up to come in if needed and support and reinforce Western European defense effort against a, a Soviet incursion, potentially with a last readout in the likes of the UK and the Iberian Peninsula if the, the Soviets do break through initially. So long story short, you have 12 founding members the likes of the so-called Benelux countries, Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg, the French, the Italians. Interestingly, the Portuguese were among the founding members, which has been a bit of an issue for NATO to then explain that it's been an alliance of values from the start, because if you recall, until the 1970s, Portugal is an authoritarian and quasi-fascist regime, and yet it was one of the founding members. Now, why that was is... Because for something as cynical as the fact that the alliance needed the Azores archipelago in the mid-Atlantic to be able to easily refuel aircraft on their way from North America to Europe at a time where their range was not enough to 
do it easily in uh, cross the Atlantic easily in one go. So interesting that Portugal should have been part of the alliance. Interesting as well that uh, Iceland is part of the alliance when it does not have a standing military, but you need Iceland in order to complete the so-called GI-UK gap from Greenland to Iceland to the UK. If you hold that line, the Soviets as before them, the Nazis and the First Reich cannot break through and mess with your resupply naval lanes of passage in the North Atlantic. So we are willing to overlook a lack of a standing military and an authoritarian leader for practical purposes in order to make this alliance effective. So let's talk about this history. We've talked a bit about the rule regarding invoking Article 5. But let's talk about how many times that has actually happened since the creation of NATO. The easy answer, it has happened only once, but then not really. What's fascinating is that Article 5 was designed so that the U.S. could supply security to Europe in case Europe came under an armed attack on the part, presumably, of the Soviet Union. And and that never happened, thankfully. In fact, NATO never fired a shot in anger throughout the Cold War. The first time that NATO shot at anybody, uh, I should say a a NATO-affiliated military shot at anybody, was in the early 1990s during the Bosnia War. The only time that uh, NATO did invoke Article 5 was, oddly enough, in the wake of 9-11, right? On September 12th, at the initiative of the Europeans primarily, and the Secretary General at the time, Lord Robertson, uh, the European allies come together and decide that what just happened in Virginia and New York City is most likely serious enough of an an aggression to warrant invoking Article 5. They do have a number of footnotes there. In the early days, they are not entirely sure that the attack came from abroad and is not about domestic terrorism. So they say that the Europeans say that they need to wait until the responsibilities are established, but eventually they were. And so NATO, essentially, the European allies offered their help to the Americans in response to 9-11. So when Article 5 had been designed so that the US could support European security, the only time it ever was invoked was the vice versa, the mirror image of that paradigm. What's also intriguing, and that's what I I said in jest, that it had been invoked, but not really, is that the Americans, by and large, had no interest in accepting NATO's help. If you recall, you're talking about the first George W. Bush administration, Donald Rumsfeld at the DOD, and they were very much intent on uh, on designing their response, especially in Afghanistan, as they pleased and based on Rumsfeld's belief in coalitions of the willing, if you recall. Yes, the willing. uh, Some of whom gave only flashlights, right? That was their contribution. The the mission determines the the coalition and not vice versa. So uh, the Americans essentially saying thanks, but no thanks. There were a number of missions that came about due to the invocation of Article 5 after 9-11, but fairly minor, uh, such as securing the Eastern Mediterranean and deploying NATO AWACS aircraft to help secure the U.S.'s airspace. But what is surprising, I would think, for most casual observers of NATO is that the NATO's intervention in Afghanistan was not a product of the invocation of Article 5, even though it sounds like it. it, Indeed, NATO only really started acting in as such as NATO in Afghanistan in 2003, two years after the, uh, the start of the Enduring Freedom mission. So long story short, the irony of all of this is that 
Article 5 was designed so that the US would come to Europe's help in case of an armed attack by a state a great power like the Soviet Union. And Article 5 would precipitate a, a massive collective conventional defense effort, potentially nuclear response as well. And in the fact of the matter is the one time that Article 5 has been invoked was in response to terrorism, not the Soviet, was a European response to help the US, not vice versa, and indeed did not lead to much of anything. No, not much of anything, although arguably those wars did seem to create more terrorists on some level, maybe, and other problems. But let's go back for a minute. You mentioned, so the 1991 was the time of the Bosnian War, but prior to that, the wall came down in Berlin and there was no Soviet Union left really at that point in time. Although it does appear currently that um, Putin as an issue of legacy for himself appears to want to resurrect that perhaps even more grandly than it may have existed during his youth and service in East Germany. But if you could also educate us, there was a period of time, particularly during the Clinton administration, when NATO suddenly expanded and ballooned. Talk a little bit about that. What happened and how was that received by these remnants, these fragments and artifacts of the Soviet Union? Yeah, it's a couple of things. First, we need to be careful with the words that we use. And I would say that NATO is very keen on making the point that it has enlarged, not expanded, because I suppose expansion makes it sound like there is a secret headquarters in NATO where, where the, the US and NATO authorities carefully plan which country they are going to swallow up next in order to, for instance, encircle and humiliate Russia. And that seems to be put in stake on what's been happening since the end of the Cold War. Enlargement, on the other hand, I, I would argue, provides a better reflection of what really happened is that a number of Central and Eastern European countries, based on the sovereign and democratic decision, and in fact, based on the fact that they remain concerned by the Russian security threat to themselves, those nations, instead of a pull factor, it was a push factor that they decided to apply to join NATO for very sound reasons, and that NATO then had to decide whether or not to accept those applications and occasionally draw a line, like in 2008, when the process to try and take one more step in the rapprochement between NATO and Ukraine was vetoed by President, French President Sarkozy and German Chancellor Merkel. So there was no automaticity, no self-evidence in the process of NATO enlargement, and it was not sort of out of central planning, so to speak. It, it happened because of the very valid security concerns of countries that decided to apply. Now, you're right that initially there was certainly a dilemma and this hesitation among the, the Clinton administration, uh, whether or not it was wise not only to keep NATO alive versus going back to trying again from scratch to create a new security architecture in Europe that would potentially include the Soviet Union and, and later on the Russian Federation. So, someone as esteemed as George Kennan, for instance, was adamant that his theory of containment that he'd propounded in 47-48 was now no longer applicable and that enlarging NATO would now be a mistake. Yeah, hesitation for a couple of years and then eventually, including for interesting domestic political reasons that there, there is still to this day a central European constituency in the United States with votes that can be 
tremendously helpful in the likes of New York State, Pennsylvania, Chicago, and 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 the upper Midwest and whatnot. And so the, the decision was made to at least open the door to the likes of Czech Republic, Poland, Hungary as a first round of enlargement. I would point out as well that as many of your Listeners might be aware there's an old debate that's been pushed among the Putin talking points about whether NATO and especially the the U.S. administration ever promised the Soviet Union and later on Russia that it would not enlarge to the east. And we need to you know call time on that discussion, which is largely a waste of time for a couple of reasons. And if you listen to Gorbachev himself, he used to say that there never was a promise made to him that NATO would not enlarge. Now, the caveat to that is, of course, he would say so to not end up with egg on his face that he was lied to. We've had some documents declassified, including by my university at George Washington in the past few years. The end result is a fairly messy one, that it looks like people like James Baker, German, French leadership, in the complex rounds of negotiations in about the reunification of Germany, did promise the, the Soviet leadership, meaning Gorbachev and Shevardnadze, that they would not expand to the east, enlarge to the east, I should say. And the, the debate is whether they meant that NATO would not enlarge to East Germany as it existed then, or whether somehow those Western negotiators could read the tea leaves and so the sole value in already committing to the Soviets that should the Warsaw Pact collapse, which it had not in 1990, then NATO would not enlarge to include former Warsaw Pact members. It's a bit tricky to think like that someone like Jim Baker could have seen the upcoming collapse of the Warsaw Pact and, and would have seen value in committing to Gorbachev that the likes of Poland and, and Hungary would not would never become NATO members. But regardless of uh, of one's opinion. On, on the matter, the truth is ultimately that any promise, any discussion, any arguments were made vis-à-vis the Soviet Union, Soviet Union, which only collapsed in late 1991, of course, and that everything changed with the collapse of the Soviet Union, which, of course, Jim Baker could not have seen coming. And so Putin, when he claims that NATO promised not to ever enlarge to Eastern Europe is over hasty in equating the Soviet Union with Russia. Uh, the moment when the Soviet Union collapses, everything changes and whatever promises have been made to Gorbachev are obviously moot. And he did bring this up. He brought it up quite famously during the Munich Security Conference of 2007 and, and ranted. I think by American standards, it was a curious rant referencing ancient grievances, you know, the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, promises he claimed to have been made, and the words were expansion, I believe, as translated. He did falsely claim about promises regarding expansion. Of course, to your point, I don't know that anyone could have seen in that moment a man quite like Putin staking his legacy on such a terrible act either, and I think any nation should feel yeah, free to revisit any promises made in the face of such a global security threat. But I'd like to pivot to something that we also heard a lot about. It got a lot of press, which was the relationship between NATO member states and Donald Trump during his presidency. He famously threatened to withdraw the United States from NATO if the member states did not pay their fair share. So let's talk for a minute. It wasn't just his complaint. Other leaders had raised this issue before, and they had done so perhaps more quietly. What was he complaining about, and how did the member nations respond to these threats? 
Yeah, there, there was a basic misunderstanding on his part, or at least he pretended that there was, so he would have a, a cleaner political argument to sell domestically, uh, which is he, he framed the, uh, the issue of burden sharing and free riding within NATO as though NATO had a central budget and that allies were expected to pay a vast amount of money, so 2% of their GDP into that collective budget and that they were delinquent as uh, someone renting a flat in a Trump Tower building was delinquent on their rent. So that's not how it works, right? What we're talking about here in terms of burden sharing is that there is a soft guideline within NATO, certainly not a legal one, uh, that each ally should spend 2% of their GDP on their own defense, right? Uh, spend 2% of their GDP should go towards their defense ministry and, and primarily, or at least in part, 20% of that amount should go to what's useful in terms of investment, which is procurement and uh, R&D. So yeah, number one, it's a soft guideline. Number two, it's about how much you pay for your own defense. And it's not about how much you pay into NATO's pockets because the cost of NATO itself as an organization is minute. It's a few hundred million dollars a year. Uh, so that's not what we're talking about. Uh, we're not talking about paying the writing a check to NATO, but making sure that the European allies can spend what they said they should in order for them to effectively contribute to collective defense within NATO and not entirely rely or not primarily rely on uh, the U.S.'s security guarantee. So I suppose that was Trump's main complaint about NATO. The second one that he mentioned was when he said, especially during his campaign, that NATO had become obsolete, is that he at the time did not see, somehow did not see the value of a collective alliance that would secure Europe and North America against external security threats, con conventional security threats, including on the part of, of Russia. And he wanted an update in NATO's agenda such that NATO would do more on counterterrorism, including so NATO, in Trump's view, would pull its weight in the likes of Afghanistan and, and the Middle East, including Iraq, because Trump was sick and tired of it was the idea that, that the US was taking on an unfair burden in, in tackling international terrorism. And so you're right that a number of NATO allies were delighted, in fact, by that push on the Trump administration's part, at least the substance of it. And someone like NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg, in fact, managed to massage Trump's language and, and in ways that Trump, he ended up being the ultimate Trump whisperer, right? Uh, making the most out of the lemons that the Trump administration threw him by by leveraging that pressure, playing good cop, bad cop with Trump's Twitter account. So that he did manage to collectively the, the that pressure and that's the ambiguity you know, the, the simultaneous pressure brought about by the the start of the Ukraine crisis in early 2014. You end up with a summit in uh, Wales in the UK September 2014 when the Allies agree to recommit to spending two percent of their GDP on defense, or at least attempting to by 2024. Back then, before 2014, you're looking at about three allies that met that threshold of 2%. Stoltenberg is very keen to tell you that nowadays, eight allies, five more, are, have reached the thresh, threshold since 2014. And that the end result, the grand total of the additional spending on defense among, among all allies is something like, if I recall, 300 billion total. So essentially, NATO would have um, added something like six times the French military budget, the equivalent of that 
in the year since 2014 because of this additional spending. Let's talk a little bit. The rumors were flying at the beginning of this most recent push into Ukraine by Putin. And one of the things that was covered quite a bit by the American, British, Canadian press, the more English, was a suggestion that NATO didn't look so great in reality in terms of its functionality, any budget it might have, military preparedness, and its status. But how did that, I mean, it, it, and referring here, of course, even to its hardware, how did that change with the invasion of Ukraine, both the perception and any reality, if it did? Right. Well, I think that the, the what we mostly need to be concerned about is still to this day political will to make the most out of the military resources that do exist, uh, because they are sure there are there are shortcomings. But when you look, for instance, at the German debate on uh, whether or not to supply leopard tanks to Ukraine, and we might have some news as early as tomorrow, Wednesday, but clearly we are not yet at the point where the problem is that Western European stocks are empty. Uh, We're still looking at the picture where what the issue is, is whether the the, the allies are willing to supply weapons to Ukraine. But I think there's another question involved in what you're asking is also whether NATO has proved itself to be capable and, and to have the an adequate posture in case Russia should try anything against NATO itself. What's for sure is the, the Russian threat to NATO has been heavily diminished by the travails of the Russian military in Ukraine. They've had to deplete to a large extent their Western military region to keep the war effort in Ukraine going. So that's the cynical Silver lining to what we've seen is, uh, if anything, I think that the the Baltic states, for instance, would rest easier now that they, they they've both because they've seen the how disastrous Russian military performance has been, but also because, in to be blunt, Putin is now incapable of trying anything serious, at least from a conventional standpoint, against the likes of the the Baltics and Poland, if he ever dreamed of doing so. But that being said, yes, the easy answer to your question is that, yes, NATO has had a a bit of a come-to-Jesus moment in terms of accepting some of its gaps in terms of military capacities. There has been uh, so much that's been learned over the past, what, 11 months by now in terms of the likelihood of great power conflict in in Europe. Here, I suppose I would single out the French and the, the Germans. The Germans, of course, have had a very steep learning curve uh, about the resurgence of great power conflict in Europe, and they've had to take a very hard look at the powerless state of their military. And that's why the unhappy German defense minister, Christine Lambrecht, uh, was summarily dismissed not too long ago, and good luck to her successor. But the key is whether they are going to effect the so-called Zeitenwende, the change of eras that uh, Chancellor Scholz had promised, where he essentially promised that he would drag Germany kicking and screaming from uh, so many of its foreign policy paradigms in terms of the use of force in Europe. Um, And that's what's being decided right now in terms of the wisdom of supplying German main battle tanks to Ukraine. Meanwhile, in France, uh, yeah, there has also been some degree of concern about what the Ukraine war has highlighted in terms of potential lack of uh, of supplies and deficiencies in the French military industrial base. And you saw the reaction last week on the part of Macron that he's going to invest, if memory serves, uh, 60 billion a year in French defense essentially something like one third to one half more of uh, the existing military budget. 
in France over the next seven years. So really a step change in how seriously France is going to take its uh, its conventional defense going forward. Let's talk a bit about the pending request. So uh, when I, I lived in Norway, I went to high school in Norway. It was a NATO country at the time with a border right next to Russia. But there were two other countries that were strategically important that never joined. And that was Sweden and Finland. And they are both now applicants there have been some back and forth with Turkey. Talk a little bit about the pending request, what authority Turkey has in terms of its ability to prevent their entry and any other ways in which Sweden and Finland could be granted that whether or not Turkey agrees. Well, there's no other way. That's the thing is uh, per the founding treaty, as always, you need a consensus on any issue within NATO uh, for anything to happen, especially with questions as important as accepting the application of new members, because the implication in accepting a new member is nothing short, at least on the face of it, of saying that you are ready to send your people to die on behalf of that country. Uh, in spite of all the caveats and nuances that I mentioned about Article 5, that's the implication that's inescapable. And so Turkey absolutely has a, a veto over whether or not uh, Sweden and Finland are going to join. And the atmospherics don't look good. Uh, what's happening, I, I suspect the working assumption is that eventually Erdogan will go ahead and, and agree to Sweden and Finland joining. But he's taking his sweet time and enjoying the leverage that he's getting in playing that game of hide and seek and, and wait and see, and that Sweden somehow keep giving him reasons to keep playing that game with the, the demonstration that we saw last week being unhelpful, even though I'm, I'm certainly not saying that the Swedish government should have or could do anything to prevent the demonstration we saw across from the Turkish embassy. But it wasn't helpful in terms of creating conditions in which Erdogan could say that, you know, he'd, he'd had enough of playing the game and he was going to let Sweden and Finland join. Yeah, the, the assumption is still that Erdogan is in such a weak position domestically, both in terms of the state of the Turkish economy and, and how he's incre increasingly and surprisingly getting weaker politically and finally facing some backlash, especially from the, the great Turkish cities, that he doesn't have that much margin. He doesn't have much of a negotiating position and eventually he's going to relent. That's still the assumption. That's the assumption if he's behaving rationally. And let's see if he if he does eventually. What's for sure is the, the the benefits of having Sweden and Finland join would be fundamental for NATO. I mean, in a way, they've been, in terms of the capabilities that they've supplied NATO, they've been members without the name for years. Given how closely aligned they've been to with NATO in terms, for instance, of participating in exercises and occasionally NATO missions as well. But what being a formal member changes is not only that Finland and NATO would come under the purview of Article 5, it's also that suddenly the Baltic Sea becomes essentially a NATO lake and that with a snap of the finger, then you resolve the issue of anti-access area denial that's been terrifying for NATO in terms of how do you defend the Baltics until Sweden and Finland join NATO to defend the Baltics need to go through what's called the Suwalki gap between Lithuania and, and Poland and or supply the Baltics through the Baltic Sea where famously Russia benefits from this exclave of Kaliningrad on the Baltic Sea that's brimming with weapons including uh, including A2AD anti-access missile systems 
the moment when Sweden and Finland join, suddenly you no longer have a serious problem defending the entirety of NATO territory, including the Baltics. That's what's at stake, uh, and we shall see. Back to you. All right, before I let you go, I want you to project into the future. What do you think NATO is going to look like three years from now, and given this intense aggression by Putin? Do I want to pretend to read the tea leaves and pretend? Well, the first thing is uh, there is certainly going to be a, a come to Jesus moment. NATO had given itself 10 years in 2014 for the Allies to uh, look better in terms of their defense spending. The clock has been ticking. And so by next year, NATO will have to explain you know, what it's been doing and whether it's good enough. And it's going to the, the issue of burden sharing and free riding is going to be uniquely visible compared to the usual. And I suspect now that we have a Republican majority in the House, including and, and one that is apparently beholden to a tiny minority of members who have no love lost for NATO and don't come from a sort, sort of establishment outlook where they, they, they would have a presumption in favor of NATO. Yeah, NATO want to be careful about providing arguments to House GOP majority that would lead to yet another rounds of doubts about uh, on the part of Congress, let alone the, the White House post-2024, whether U.S. support for NATO is, is worth the, the costs or not. Second is the stakes involved with NATO succeeding or failing have been hugely heightened by the Ukraine war. And so in the here and now, the Ukraine war has been has helped focus the mind for NATO, has been a shot in the arm for NATO, has helped NATO move past, for instance, the period of time where someone like President Macron called NATO brain dead only three years ago. But that's because of this impression that NATO now has found a purpose and has found greater cohesion and is working on becoming stronger. All of that is based on how the stakes of the great game in Europe have been heightened by the Ukraine war. The flip side of that argument is that if NATO fails now, that might be a death blow to the alliance. So um, I think it is right to say that the stakes have never been higher for NATO, at least not since 1989 or 1991. And with that, I will take the coward's way out of your question and say we shall see, but the stakes are very high. We'll accept that. Many of our guests take that that route, and sometimes it's the right route to take. So I want to thank you very much for talking to us tonight. We're glad to have you, and we hope in a year's time, when this situation has developed a bit more, we can speak to you again. Thanks, Elizabeth. Good to talk to you. All right. Yeah. Our guest tonight has been Professor Erwan Lagadik of the George Washington University and Atlantic Council. I want to thank you for tuning in to NSLT tonight and remind you to share this episode with a friend. Send us comments and feedback. You can find us on Twitter, at least while Twitter is still on life support. We can be found at ABA NATSEC. You can also send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. Our producer and writer is me, Elisa Poteet, always here in my individual capacity. Francis Berkham is our editor and my co-producer. Rebecca Salito is our program manager. My other co-producer is Holly McMahon, along with all the amazing leaders of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Thanks for listening. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates, or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.